New York City's theatrical community has a rich and storied past. But ask most people what they know about Yiddish theater, and chances are they only know one show with a Yiddish connection. Fiddler on the Roof has been hugely popular for years, but the story of Yiddish theater spans well beyond the mainstream stage. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. A new exhibit at the Museum of the City of New York dives deep into the history of Yiddish theater. The exhibit is called New York's Yiddish Theater, from the Bowery to Broadway, and is accompanied by a book of the same name. Edna Nishon is behind the project. She's a professor of theater and drama at the Jewish Theological Seminary and senior associate at Oxford University's Center for Hebrew and Jewish Studies. Edna, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, you're very welcome. So when does the story of Yiddish theater in New York City begin? It begins in 1882, six years after Yiddish theater comes into being in Romania. So that's where it originated, in Romania? It started in a a, a so-called Café Chantant, a a, a, a wine garden in Yassi, Romania, where the two performers were singing, There were folk singers performing in various places for quite a few years by then. And a young writer called Abraham Goldfaden came to town. Uh, He really wanted to establish a Yiddish newspaper. It didn't work out. And uh, joined forces with these two performers and provided them with, I'd call it a short script, almost a commedia dell'arte kind thing. But it connected the various songs and created something with continuity and some sort of a basic plot. It was immensely successful. Uh, He became the first producer, writer, director, you name it, of the Yiddish Theater, created his own company. And uh, within less than a year... There, there was a woman performing alongside with them, and it caught like wildfire. Six years later, with the beginning of mass immigration to America, mm-hmm. which starts in the early 1880s, it comes to New York. First performance is a very minor affair, but it's remembered for two reasons. First of all, because it was the first. They did a Goldfaden operetta. There was very uh, little dramatic material written at the time. And secondly, because it involved Boris Tomaszewski, then a 16-year-old, 15, 16-year-old youth who would become uh, the biggest commercial star of the Yiddish theater in years to come. He really was renowned all over. So that's the beginning, a very modest beginning. So where was Yiddish theater centered in New York City? It was centered right near where immigrant Jews lived, which is in Lower East Side. At first, it's in the Bowery because they don't have their own specially built theaters. They move into theaters, many of them uh, theaters that served various other ethnicities before them for instance, the Germans. And um, and there are three theaters. uh, By 1900, there are three theaters uh, where Yiddish shows are given regularly. These are very large houses. These are not tiny little off-Broadway kind spaces. And um, it was estimated in 1900 when they were 
between 500 and 600,000 Jews in New York, they sold well over a million tickets a year. Wow, wow. If you take off, you know, the old, the disabled, the babies, etc., it's an unusual number. This was the major entertainment of the Lower East Side. I was going to ask, so who was the audience for a Yiddish theater? Was it the wealthy or was it the masses? Everybody. Everybody. And another interesting thing is that even though many of the, most of the people have had a somewhat traditional uh, lifestyle, there were performances on Friday and Saturday. There was no strong rabbinate to oppose it. In fact, those were the most popular nights. So new shows always opened on Friday and Saturday and Sunday. Uh, all the shows were given during the week and were very often sold as benefits to various organizations. But everybody went. The rich, the poor, the religious, the, the single, the married, you name it, they went. How varied were the performances? Well, they all had a very strong musical element. Uh, you have to understand that when, at the very beginning, the only trade performers Jews had were singers and musicians, because there was a whole uh, cantorial tradition amongst Jews, and and young younger boys who had good voices would train with a rabbi. With I'm sorry, with a cantor, and and the voices were good and trained. Um, so music was really in the DNA of the Yiddish theater. Music mattered a very very great deal, but of course in in uh, the 1890s, especially, we begin to have some serious drama. Uh, not all actors were such great singers, mm-hmm. and uh, some and the intelligentsia craved something of more substance, and that brings into the uh, picture a Russian-born writer called Jacob Gordon, who transforms the culture of the uh, Yiddish theater. How so? Well. He uh, he begins to write for Jacob P. Adler, who was the great, great dramatic actor uh, of the Yiddish stage. And uh, his disadvantage was that he did not have a great voice. Mm-hmm. So he was a great admirer of Russian culture, Russian uh, theater, Russian uh, drama, and was was hungry for good material. He runs into Gordon, who had just arrived here, doesn't know Yiddish all that well, and but has an awful lot of kids. I think he had nine or ten kids to support. It is looking for work. Uh, writing for the Russian journals in New York is not uh, very profitable, and so he is offered by Adler to write a play. You could make a lot more money doing that. His first play, Siberia, uh, produced in 1891, is basically uh, fails. The audience doesn't know what to make of it. It's a serious Russian-like play. But his second play, The Jewish King Lear, is a phenomenal success. It establishes um, Jacob Adler as a mega star in terms of dramatic literature and creates a new culture because Gordon insists that actors do not ad-lib, that they stay faithful to the original script, that they don't do any shticks. He writes his plays in a language that is a normative Yiddish rather than this highfalutin um, uh, Germanized language uh, that was used before. 
and and he really brings a measure of seriousness and and uh, the whole world of ideas, especially by the way women's rights uh, to the Yiddish. Stage. Yeah, I was going to ask the question, how much was the politics of the day intertwined with Yiddish theater? Well, it depends what you call politics. Well, you uh, mentioned elections women's in rights. New York, no. Women's rights, much more advanced than, than what you would have as part of the regular conversation in New York. Very, very advanced. The Lower East Side by nature was pro-labor because most people were workers. So went without saying that you went with the union people, not with the bosses. Um, there was great interest in in uh, in what was happening in Europe, especially from a Jewish perspective. So let's say the, the Dreyfus trial and the uh, the blood the, the Bailey's blood libel uh, uh, trial uh, were dramatized, and uh, we have to remember we're talking about. A period when there's no television, when there's no uh, radio, when there's nothing. I mean, you have to go out, and the theater offered some docudramas about these events. Then major American um, uh, sensational news, like the Johnson Flood, is reproduced in Yiddish on stage. But the ongoing um, stories of American politics, a lot less so. That happens years later in the 19, late 1920s, especially the 30s, when you have um, a very strong political theater. You mentioned the pro-labor sentiment mm-hmm. on the Lower East Side. Was the Yiddish theater itself unionized? Yes, it was the first one in the world to unionize. Really? Yes. The Hebrew Actors Union was established in 1899-1900. In fact, we have the banner, the original banner of the union. And it's at the time, it struck even people who were very pro-union as very bizarre because it made sense for blue-collar workers, but for artists to unionize made no sense. But they did, and they uh, the, the unions were extremely, extremely strong because there was the Hebrew Actors' Union, but then there were additional unions, stagehandlers, prompters, you name it, they had a union. But all the unions were connected, like NPR stations. <laughs> so if one small union went on strike, the entire industry would be on strike. So they uh, they controlled the business to a large extent. You had many complaints about it from managers, but the, there was nothing you could do. They could they imposed salaries. They imposed uh, the number of actors you had to use. Sometimes you had, you had to hire an actor you didn't need at all, but they had to supply work for him. So it was just there, and you paid him. And the union uh, kept the control of 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 the business um, until the nineteen fifties. In fact, there were not only that you couldn't perform if you were not a union member. Now, in order to get into the union as an actor, you had to perform or to audition rather for the entire rank and file. It was one of the scariest uh, processes one could go through. Stella Adler fainted. <laughs> Maury Schwartz failed the first time. Um, you know, they were not particularly interested in bringing in new people that increased the competition. But it it was known as an ordeal to pass that test and to be approved unanimously by, by the entire membership of the uh, union was quite something. So, uh, 
You referenced Maurice Schwartz. We mm-hmm. haven't talked about him specifically. Yeah. Who was he? Maurice Schwartz comes into the picture a little later. He established one of the greatest uh, theatrical institutions in the city, the Yiddish Art Theater. And I'll I'll tell you a little anecdote before I give you the history uh, of him. Uh, Some years ago, I was doing research at uh, the Performance Art uh, Library at Lincoln Center, and I asked, uh, there's one area there that is sort of an inner sanctum where you have to wear white gloves and you're not allowed to use a pen and da-da-da-da. And I asked for photographs of Maury Schwartz and this beautiful, beautiful um, elderly black woman who clearly had been a dancer or an actress comes back, uh, hands it over to me, looks at the photographs and says, this is Maurice Schwartz. Oh, he was fabulous. We used to go see him all the time. And my jaw dropped <laughs> for a moment. And before I had a chance to ask her who who were we, she disappeared. Huh. And I kept asking about her. I think she was a volunteer there. And by the time people knew who I was talking about, they told me she had passed away. Uh. But, but, you know, when you work with ethnic material, that makes you feel very, very good. Mm-hmm. Because... Uh, there's always this inner little doubt. Was it really as good as they say? Mm-hmm. And when someone who comes from without that culture immediately recognizes the face, immediately uh, hails him, you feel good about it. Now, Maury Schwartz. Maury Schwartz started the Yiddish Art Theater in 1918. There was a great drive by the intellectual elite, the newspapers, uh, and so forth, to create an art theater, by which they largely meant um, a theater that would present quality plays, quality dramas, would be done in a fashion that is uh, similar to what the modern European uh, theater uses, that would take itself seriously. He starts his uh, company in 1918 and produces an amazing number of of plays. I mean, I I don't even know how he kept up with it. It seems like every 10 days he produces another play. He gets the best actors in the business because they're eager to be part of this um, enterprise. And um, and he keeps it going until around 1950 without official support of any sort. Yes, he sells uh, benefits and and all kind of extra arrangements, but nobody donates money to the Yiddish Art Theater. And it's a major, major institution. What's interesting about it is that in the 1920s, the earlier years, you see a lot of European drama done in Yiddish. So you see a repertoire that is a mix of Yiddish drama by the best Yiddish writers, who are also enticed by this and write plays for for the more serious stage, but also a lot of of Strindberg and Ibsen and Chekhov and so on and so forth. In the 1930s, it becomes almost entirely Jewish. And what becomes clear to me is that by then, the immigrants who needed the crutch of the Yiddish theater in order to take part in in what's known as world theater, no longer need it. Mm-hmm. They can go to Broadway or to the other theaters. So if they go to Maurice Schwartz, they want a so-called Jewish show. And he um, 
He produces some of the greatest plays and, and dramatic adaptations of major, major novels in his theater. The most successful is Yosha Kalb, which opened in 1932 and becomes a worldwide sensation. Plays for the entire season here. He takes it to Poland. He takes it to Europe. Uh, plays all over the world. And um, on the one hand is 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 a huge success. On the other hand, of course, it disrupts the ongoing existence of the theater in New York. And at that time, another art theater comes into the scene, and that is the Artif, which was a Yiddish uh, workers' theater, but workers' art theater. They cared a great deal about the art part that was associated with the Communist Party here in New York. They started an amateur theater in uh, the late 1920s, but they're very eager to produce not just propaganda, to produce quality theater. And in the 1930s, especially when Schwartz is out of town, traveling the world with his show, they for a while become, in fact, the primary um, art theater in the city. And they're especially successful when um, communism becomes less rigid because at first uh, people from without the communist camp would not go to the theater. But 1933-34, when the Communist Party um, shifts shifts gears and and develops the the ideal of the Popular Front, that is to say, collaborating with um, uh, democratic institutions and not being so uh, uh, fervently revolutionary at the moment. Uh, everything opens up, and uh, the theater becomes very successful. And some big names come out of it. The biggest name is Jules Dassin, who later becomes a renowned film director, marries Melina Mercury, created, uh, directs Rififi, and so on and so forth. But always, always, he just died a couple of years ago, always spoke about his uh, beginnings as a as a youngster, with the Artef Theater. So these are the 1930s. You said that in its early days, the Yiddish theater used already existing buildings, but were there theaters built specifically for Yiddish performances? It's a great question. The first one is a grand theater, which is still very close to the uh, the Lower East Side on Grand Street at Houston. Still stands today? No. 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 What year it was, was this? It was 1905. Okay. The mayor comes to the opening, all kind of dignitaries. Of course, at the time, if you wanted to go to a Jewish place where you had a bulk of people, well, here you have politics. I don't think a mayor at that time would have gone to a synagogue. Where do you go? You go to the theater. You have uh, almost a 1,000 2,000 people waiting for you. So that theater opens to very elegant theater. And at the exhibition, we have a huge um, uh, photo of the theater. And it's it's quite interesting to look because the front of the theater is super elegant. But the side street looks like a Lower East Side Street. Mm. So at that, when you look at it, and you don't see it when you look at the small photograph, 
you realize that this was the glamour side. This was the beauty. This was the aesthetics offered to the side street, which was daily life and, uh, you know, the sweatshop, the, all the, the, the Jacob Reese type uh, element that we know. So this is the first one. Then as Jews move out of the Lower East Side, uh, new ones come in, but there's a movement out to the Bronx and to Brooklyn. You have two interesting developments. On the one hand, you begin to have local, smaller, mostly smaller, not all, local theaters in the Bronx and Brooklyn to serve the local population mostly. On the other hand, you have the creation of a Yiddish entertainment zone on 2nd Avenue. And that is uh, roughly between Houston and 14th Street. And four truly majestic, expensive theater buildings are the backbone of that area. Next to it, you have restaurants and nightclubs and stores and this and that. And of those, one is still in existence. That is the theater that was built in 1926 for Maurice Schwartz on 12th, uh, 12th Street and 2nd Avenue. It's gorgeous. And uh, it has the the interior has landmark status. So and is that no still used as a theater? It. No, it's used uh, as a movie theater. Okay. But the the uh, orchestra, the main auditorium, is stunning. It's done in Moorish style, and uh, for many years it changed hands. It it is the theater where Calcutta opened. Calcutta was a play done all in the nude. Not Yiddish, uh. of course. But I keep thinking to myself, you know, all these naked actors running around, <laughs> and the ceiling has this magnificent Star of David. And it must have looked kind of odd. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but that theater is still around. And uh, if you go in, it's really, it, it takes your breath away for a moment. When did Yiddish theaters start to diminish in New York City? And why? <sighs> Look, uh, it the it begins to go down with the end uh, of mass immigration, which comes to a nearly full halt in 1924 uh, when Congress passes a bill. Uh, it still seems very uh, like a very bright uh, presence and future in the late 1920s. But then gradually it, it, it dwindles down. Now, what happens cannot only be assessed in terms of numbers. What happens is also that the audience gets older and the actor gets older. Mm -hmm. So uh, in a survey in the 1930s of the actors who are working in the field, most of them are already middle-aged and much of the audience is so. Now, that doesn't mean they go less, but the expectations begin to shift. Uh, you come for a feel-good show. You don't come to be challenged as much. The younger people come for a special show. Yes, for, for something like Yosha Kalb, they would go to the Yiddish theater, but they do not necessarily go there routinely. So the numbers are still strong, but the, the energy begins to change. Writers get older. Writers write less and less for the stage. Serious writers, I mean. It becomes more and more operettas. 
And uh, the, the serious decline, of course, is felt after the Second World War, when a whole new generation um, comes of age. And what you see then is an interesting development that uh, you could term uh, Yinglish, much like Spanglish today. Uh-huh. So people who can no longer or who no longer read a Yiddish newspaper or book grew up with the language at home and understand some of it, but not very intricate language, um, are very comfortable with this style where where it's a kind of mishmash of Yiddish, but with a lot of American Americanisms and American English language words thrown in. And that is also, of course, typical of Catskill humor, this, this kind of mixed language. The Borscht Belt. The Borscht Belt uses it a lot. So um, that is a kind of interim, I would say, linguistic phase in between uh, near extinction and and full blossoming. Yeah. What would you say, Edna, was the Yiddish theater's most profound impact on American theater and culture in general? You know, it's a theater is not, is 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 an art of the moment. It's it's very hard to point at a direct impact in this or that term. There are various aspects to the to the influence. What is important is that there's constantly an ongoing conversation from the earliest years between Broadway and and the Yiddish theater. Uh, one reason may be that uh, there were quite a lot of Jews involved in the English language theater. So what is the influence? The influence of Yiddish and Yiddish culture is much easier to um, to point at that the direct impact of the Yiddish theater. But if you take the Adler family, for instance, Jacob P. Adler is the, the, the great patriarch of the family, has a lot of kids from three wives and some other relationships, and all of the kids are in the theater. Now, his, the best known are um, Stella Adler and her brother Luther Adler, son of, of uh, Jacob and Sarah Adler. Both of them start their careers on the Yiddish stage from, from babyhood on. There is a, a certain intuitive, I would say, almost connection to the Russian theater because this this is where the Jewish intelligentsia came from, and that was the 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 culture they admired. So it's Stella who performs so much in Yiddish, and then goes up, joins the group theater, and then she studies with Stanislavski, and then she comes here and trains some of America's greatest actors. Can I actually put my finger on a particular moment? No, I can't, but she grew up with, with a certain culture, with a certain appreciation of theater, with a certain style, and I have to say that to this day, her grandson, who still runs the, the Stella Adler studio, talks about it. It's what you heard at home. It's the the the, the, the stories, the, the, the opinions, the approach to it, and um, one of the nice things he said is you have to in order to know where you're going, you have to know where you're coming from. Mm. And there were a lot of those. So the impact on, on the New York stage was there. Um, I can say 
that the London theater would be the same without London's Yiddish theater, without the Jews, not the New York theater, no. And then, of course, you have the entertainers who created television. You wouldn't have Emil Brooks. You wouldn't have, uh, some years earlier, Danny Kay. There's so many names that, that come up. Jerry Lewis was a child of the Catskills. So all these, these names are part and parcel of, of this tradition. Did the Yiddish theater have its own version of the Tonys? Oh, yeah, they tried for a while. It wasn't... Uh, for a few years, there was something called uh, the Goldies. Uh, the Goldies were uh, named for Abraham Goldfaden. These were small statues in the, uh, that, that replicated the, the father of the Yiddish theater. And yeah, they were given it, they were given to actors. There was also a kind of Hall of Fame on 2nd Avenue, uh, if you look carefully around 11th Street, you'll see the stars on the uh, sidewalk. A little hard to notice, but if you look carefully, you'll see them. They're there. Yeah. yeah. So again, the book is accompanied by an exhibit at the Museum of the City of New York. How long is that exhibit on display? Well, the exhibit opened on um, March 9th. And it was supposed to close at the end of uh, July. I just had word that it was extended by two weeks. Exciting. And it's, uh, I have to tell you, it's, it's doing extremely well beyond, really beyond my expectations. Edna, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Edna Nishon is the curator of the exhibit New York's Yiddish Theater from the Bowery to Broadway at the Museum of the City of New York and the editor of a companion book of the same name. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. Thanks so much for listening. My Yiddish mama. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.